What is crack-a-lackin' Hardwood Knox listeners? I am Dan Valley coming at you without my fantabulous co-host Adam Frommel. Also breaking a cardinal rule I have to never publish a podcast on the middle of a Friday. However, you all might be waiting for our second installment of trade targets for every team. We've already done the East. Go check out that pod. We have the West up. Um, due to what I thought was better programming schedule, I was able to talk with Caitlin Cooper from Indy Cornrows about the Indiana Pacers. If you listen to this podcast or follow basketball at large, you know who Caitlin is at C2 underscore Cooper on Twitter. She's great. Does such a good job breaking down all things Pacers. Um, the way that she's able to write, I've told her this, I've told a bunch of people, I think I've mentioned on this podcast too. So good at writing and making very in-depth, granular details, sometimes complex details about the game, accessible to everyone, including morons like myself. So that's a pretty big deal. Had the opportunity to have her on to talk about all the stuff that's going on with the Pacers, what what's happened so far, where this team could be headed. Um, they have a few days off as of we recorded this, but in, rather than holding it until Monday, this team has been too much of a unpredictable entity might be the best best way to put it that I didn't want it to blow up somehow. So we're just going to put it out on the Friday afternoon. We'll delay the trades pod that we have in the clip. That'll come out on Monday or Tuesday, and then you'll get a mailbag before the Christmas games. Not sure if anyone was that concerned about our programming schedule, but we know everyone loves to talk about fake trades. So just want to give you an update at that. Uh, I get into a lot with Caitlin Cooper. You're going to enjoy the conversation again. She is among, if not the absolute best in the business. Our very few housekeeping notes before we cannonball in here beyond the programming schedule. Follow us on Twitter at Hardwood Knox. Please, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Hardwood Knox wherever you get your podcasts. Spotify now has a rating system in place. So if you're already subscribed on Spotify, go over there, throw us a rating, write a review if they allow you to. I haven't really checked it out. We also ask whether you use iTunes or not. Head over to iTunes, throw us a five-star rating, write a review. If this is your first time checking out Hardwood Knox and you have made it this far into the intro because you're very allegiant to everything that Caitlin Cooper does. Welcome. Maybe you're just here by random. Welcome to you as well. Consider throwing us that permanent subscription, downloading all our episodes, writing a review, throwing us that five-star rating. Help us promote this. Retweet our promos on Twitter. Tell your friends, family members, acquaintances on the internet about us. We are, as I always say, among the, I will say, only modestly insufferable national NBA podcast. That is enough out of me talking at full at full speed and a half and rambling let's get to some indiana pacers talk with the world famous the one and only caitlin cooper caitlin welcome back to the hardware knox podcast thank you so much for coming on within a shorter span of time than you normally would have i try and leave like a healthy gap between team look aheads and if we're going to do a mid-season check-in but the pacers have demanded it uh most importantly though first and foremost how are you doing I'm doing well. I'm always happy to get an invite back to this particular podcast. You've had me on so many times, so I'm always grateful and willing to come back on. And yeah, I mean, the Pacers have kind of forced our hands here. I think we have to talk about them. The report, that first one from the athletic, uh-huh. what, what is just, what were your impressions of it? The timing behind it? And I think my, you know, I guess a week and a half removed or whatever it is. Do you actually buy into the idea that this team would consider the nuclear teardown given how out of character it would be right so the initial timing didn't exactly surprise me because of everything that went wrong in that game when they lost to Miami I mean they were having I wouldn't necessarily term it as infighting but there was clear frustration on the court the arena was empty you could hear people it seemed like a pin could drop and at the same time the fans that were there were booing the product um the effort level was not good the process against the zone was not good so it didn't exactly surprise me I mean that or that game alone forced my hand to write about, you know, what had been going wrong for them in close games and other stuff and me feeling like they didn't really have an identity. So it didn't really surprise me that the report itself came out, but the actual report with the word rebuilding was surprising to me, because as you say, that's not really synonymous with what people think of the way that the Pacers operate, but also there had been reports over the summer that Kevin Pritchard had been at least pondering the possibility of doing that and that he had gotten pushback from ownership. So to me, if that's something that you were going to do, you probably would have done it then, like even maybe before you hired Rick Carlisle or before you drafted Chris Duarte as more of like this win now, um, ready to go prospect. 
So that aspect of it. But then when you got into the article, I mean, that was kind of the quibble that I had. It didn't exactly sound like that was the intention, even in the reporting. I mean, it was saying rebuild on the go. It wasn't saying that they were going to be into, you know, like this wasn't going to be a Sam Hinkie thing, I guess is what we should be saying or what the Thunder are currently doing anyways. So I think probably some of it got you know, down the road a little bit further than what the reporting even indicated. But now Herb Simon's done subsequent interviews and it doesn't sound like he at all wants anybody to think that he's going to be on the path of tanking because it's not something that he wants to watch. That got uh, quite a bit of outrage and pushback from people around Indiana. I was a little bit, you know, more, I guess I should say, I didn't have quite the same reaction as other people did. I think it was kind of out of out of touch for him to use the words like, oh, I love our little team. And then pretending as though uh, Indiana is going to attract top tier free agents feels a little bit tone deaf. But at the same time, like he was kind of coming with the same approach that Rick Carlisle has. Like we like our team, but trades can always happen. And to me, that's what front they need to be putting out right now. Maintain leverage, but also you don't need to be downplaying the talent that you have in your locker room. So I'm not under the impression that Herb Simon's going to block Kevin Pritchard from making moves. I think that they're still going to be scanning the market and trying to see if there's ways that they can get this team better now or in the future. Because, I mean, Herb Simon even said in one of the quotes somewhere along the line, like, we're not going to go out and intentionally lose games or, you know, that's just not the way I want to do it. Now we might lose games if we're trying to get opportunities for rookies, but it's not going to be something we intentionally do. So I'm still not under the impression that they're satisfied with the way things are, but I do know that there were other people that had interpreted it more that way. I found it odd the way it was framed too, where I think one of the lines was just like at 87, Herb Simon is more open to a rebuild, which just doesn't make any sense to me. What's at 87? Like why, like you want to be around, like to see the end of this rebuild. And then also this isn't scientific and Chris Duarte was clearly the right pick. But like you drafted an older rookie, you hired Rick Carlisle. This team does feel like it's built to make moves, maybe a consolidation move, but it doesn't really seem like it's built or that its thought process, even in the offseason, was the prospect of a teardown was on the table. Right. I mean, and even if you just think along those particular lines and they say that, you know, Karras or Sabonis or Miles or maybe both of them are available you know, Golden State's been one of the teams that's been mentioned. And I brought this up on our podcast that it's like, okay, if you're going the full rebuild route, which it doesn't sound to me at all that they are, but if you were, the decision between Turner and Sabonis would merely just be about asset evaluation and which one of them's going to, you know, net you the most in return. So you're going to like trade one of them to Golden State for young prospects that you yourself didn't just draft when you could have. Like that just seems a little <laughs> bit counterintuitive to me. I mean, they literally could have drafted Moses Moody. They passed right. on him to take Chris Duarte because they liked his ability to be plug and play and that he fit the way Rick Carlisle wanted to play. Now, I'm not necessarily saying it would be a bad thing to have both of those types of players, but it just seems counterintuitive based on what their summer planning was. Miles Turner had the interesting interview with The Athletic and Kevin Pritchard, uh, Kevin Pritchard was on the record for that one too. And I think his comments about them not having a star was... I, he was rightfully dragged for it, but he did at least try and clarify it on Twitter. I'm more curious about what you made about Turner's comments and his, you've mentioned it, role clarity. And you've talked about on past podcasts we've done about other stuff that he can do aside from shoot. And then you've mentioned a few times this year on Twitter and in stuff he wrote, like he has the one dribble, like escape three in his arsenal now. And so he's clearly a better player, but do you buy into that he won deserves a bigger role or needs a more clarified role or is he even the type of guy that's capable of shouldering more than he's doing at the moment I mean in general I'm a little bit confused by exactly what he was getting at in that article I know he said after the fact that like this isn't about touches or play calling it's about role clarity and I've talked to my teammates and I've talked to Kevin Pritchard and Rick Carlisle about it and to me it's kind of like well then why did you need to say it publicly if you'd already talked to the people who control it but I think what my interpretation of what he wants is he wants to do more of the Sabonis stuff when both of them are on the court, or at least have the opportunity to, and that he wants to be involved more as the screener or show that he can do more different things. And it's funny because when you look back at that game against the Knicks before the night before that article came out, I tweeted during the game that I felt that there was very much like an intention behind 
how that game started. Like they ran the very first play of the game for him. And it was a different play than they've been running all season. They were getting him more ball screens. It seemed like they had shifted some of his minutes to just a smidge to get him more at solo five. And we're having involved in way more screens than what they had in the past. So it was clear to me that they were trying to accommodate it to an extent for me. When I look at miles and Sabonis, especially in the minutes when they're on the floor together, I already feel like Sabonis probably isn't doing quite enough of the Sabonis stuff. So to tilt it to Miles, there needs to be a clear reason why you're doing it. Like, I'm not opposed to him being involved as the screener, but it's like, who's defending him? What reason are you doing it? If you are going to be looking at him in on the interior, is there a clear advantage there? Because there are some games where he can do this. Like last night against the Pistons, he posted up a guard and right in front of the basket, sealed, turned, and got an and one, I believe. The night before in Milwaukee, he posted up Drew Holiday and got completely stonewalled, and the ball was stripped. And then it's kind of like, you know, why am I watching this? So it was kind of interesting last night, the very first play of the game, again, they ran a wedge set for him to slide down to the block, but he got bumped off, off his route. And then they turned it into like motion strong, but it's kind of funny because I had brought that up like two weeks ago that like all those wedge sets that Nate Bjorkman used to run with, you know, Doug McDermott screening at the elbow for Sabonis to slide to the block are gone. Like they don't do a lot of contained ways to get him post-ups. It's more just organic, you know, duck-ins. And then to see them do that on the first play of the game tells me that they're at least you know, trying to get him involved maybe earlier so that maybe he's a little bit more engaged as the game goes on. But I, I've kind of always envisioned him and I was happy with what progress he's made because I see him as a six foot 11 shooting guard. I see him as a guy who's really improved at finding cuts, finding spots in that sort of way. His three point shot is falling at a better clip. What I said about, you know, if somebody hard closes out at him, he can still escape from that. Also getting better at putting the ball on the floor a little bit. I think he's better off playing outside of the action, especially with the current iteration of the roster. Now, if he got traded to a different team or he was just at the five, maybe with more reps, he would improve at some of those things. I don't think he's super fluid on the role. It sounds like he wants to be doing more of that. And it looks to me that they've tried to adjust his footwork a smidge so that he's using a hop step and he can release a little bit better, like what you see Sabonis do that's a little bit more fluid. Maybe that comes with time, but I think that that's affected some of the contact that he's making on some of the picks. So he's going to have to find a happy middle there. But um, there are just not as many options from a mile screen in general as there is from Sabonis. You're not getting the same degree of playmaking. He doesn't get defended in the same way. So that's another element of it too. If Miles has improved to the degree that he thinks he has, and then teams do start defending him with more people. So it isn't just a two on two or, you know, he does start doing more against a switch than what comes next. I think it makes sense for him to be, you know, especially if he was on a better team to continue in this role where he's kind of low usage, high efficiency. I think that makes sense. But I also agreed with Rick Carlisle's quote in that article. They're running a far more read and react offense than even the beginning of the year. There's places that he could be involving himself. I don't think that any of his coaches have said, you know, we just want you to hide in the corner. You just go and stand there. You're not allowed to leave. You're not allowed to find other spots to assert yourself within the offense. I, I just really quibble with that but you know if that's the way he's felt and they're willing to help him find different ways to assert himself I don't have a problem with that he has you know his efficiency has been better this year but I think that there needs to be a two-way street there and some of the accountability falls with him as well and it's also just kind of tough where let's say if he even did deserve it the idea of having him do more of the Sabonis stuff during the minute in which he's on the court with Sabonis just doesn't track at all because Sabonis is so much better at the Sabonis stuff Well, yeah. And like I said, I mean, some of that's even been diluted. And the funny thing is, is I mean, I wrote this article in preseason only in the reverse. Why is Sabonis standing in the corner? Because it was happening so much in the first few preseason games. I'm like, you know, something is at work here. And it felt like they were trying to evaluate how much can both of these guys do? How interchangeable can they be? Can we play Sabonis off ball? Will he be able to hit those shots, you know, in the shorter corner? And also, can Miles be running more out of delay? Can he be doing more of this handoff stuff? Can we have him at the elbows? Can we have him more at the screener? And I thought the results of that were pretty mixed. It didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And then shortly into the season, they kind of went away from it. But, you know, even his one quote where he kind of talked about, you know, I had the 40 point game against the Wizards. Like, you know, that was incredible. Obviously, everything that you wanted him to do, he did. If he was open, he shot the ball. He didn't hesitate. And that's been a problem over the last several years where there were times where he might record scratch out of a three or if somebody's smaller pre-rotated or rotated over him he'd pass out of those shots he wasn't doing it he was confidently looking for his own offense that's what you want him to do but then he was kind of like well then the next game it was just status quo again I'm like well I don't know that I would say that 
I think that you went from not being guarded against the Wizards to the Miami Heat actually guarding you. And then, you know, O'Shea Brissett stayed on the floor and they they were not running plays and getting touches for O'Shea Brissett. Like he was just playing on the periphery of Spain pick and rolls for the majority of the game. He was just making shots. So I don't really see how their roles were like dramatically different there that warranted, you know, why O'Shea stayed on the court and Miles didn't because he didn't have the same flow. But um, I'm clearly not him. I don't know exactly what he wants, but um, I found some of it pretty confusing personally. Do you think that that either exploration of trying to fit in Turner more, just explore the rest of the offense is like accounting for how differently they're using Sabonis or what, or I guess I should say less they're using Sabonis. Like what has been your read on that? Because I think his, his playing time isn't down a ton compared to last year. And he was going to that Pistons game, averaging more than 10 fewer touches in the front court per game, which just seems like compared to the, I think he's playing less than two minutes less, um, per game compared to last season. That just seems like way too stark for someone who's been such a driving force for that offense and for that team for so long now. I mean, I think it's a lot of confounding factors there. I think in preseason, it was somewhat wanting to see the Miles stuff. I mean, Miles' touches are basically the same as the last two years. So I don't think it's necessarily like taking, you know, from here and putting it there directly. I think it was more an overall uh systematic stylistic preference that i mean i don't really think sabonis was ever this heliocentric option that he gets billed as but i think it was we're going to de-emphasize that because we want to play more together we want to have this more egalitarian approach where more people can you know dribble pass and shoot and that you know wasn't necessarily working out to the best way especially late in games where i think that they probably could have been playing through him a little bit more i think some of it too is just the guards i mean i don't think it all falls on the coaching staff i think there's times where you know late when defensive coverages change you need to be able to pass out of a trap or you know get the ball to the spots on the floor that are the most obvious and sometimes they just flat out don't do that so that has impacted his touches. But I do think over this like last little stretch here, since that heat game happens, his elbow touches and his post-ups are up. Like last night when they played the Pistons, which, you know, the Pistons have obviously lost 13 straight games. Take this for what you will. But the last team that the Pistons beat was also the Pacers. And if you watch that game back in the fourth quarter, the Pacers scored 10 points over the final 10 minutes. The Pistons were blitzing the heck out of them. And they weren't getting the ball to where it needed to be, which is a common trend over these fourth quarters and close games last night it was evident you know and Lloyd Pierce is obviously filling in for Rick Carlisle so maybe that would have been a a slightly different approach but they posted Sabonis by my raw count seven times like on the night they posted him nine he's not even averaging anywhere close to that for the season so the fact that they were willing to play inside out and get and find out oh hey you know post-gravity can have some value we can actually get open threes and we can get layups and cuts and he can get some shots like I think that there is value to playing inside out and getting more paint touch threes, whether that's Sabonis in the post or it's the guards actually getting into the paint rather than doing some of the like more dinking around the perimeter that they've done in some of these late game situations. But um, I think the answer to the long question is that some of it has been stylistic and wanting to have a reduction and some of um, playing through him in the post and in other interior situations. I think early, some of it was wanting to explore what miles could do. And I do think some of it just lands with the guards. Since let's say the Pacers have been uncharacteristically thrown into the national discourse, at least on a level where they're not usually in there, has there been like a biggest misconception about Sabonis that you've noticed as people either talk about his value to the Pacers or if they're framing it in sort of a trade market type of way? Well, I mean, yeah, I think somewhat with both of the bigs, because I think that they both, even, even locally, they both get looked at such monoliths that all that they do is at, you know, the polar opposite ends of the floor. And I think it's been pretty obvious early on that they've each improved at least in small ways at the end of the floor that they're not necessarily known for. Um, so bonus like last year, Nate Bjorken tried on occasion to hedge with him and it, it was a disaster. Like you could not do it. And this year they're doing that pretty regularly to keep more of the action away from the rim. Cause you obviously don't want him to be having everything funneled at him like Nate Bjorkren was doing for the majority of last year with their overly aggressive defense on the perimeter. I think he's held up with that pretty well. I mean, the other night against the Bucks, they were getting split pretty often, but their defense overall just wasn't very good. Drew Holiday was really ripping them up, but um, he's done that. I think that his straight ups around the rim, what he's done in transition has been better. Um, his overall, I think his rim numbers are probably somewhat comparable to last year, though they are on lower volume, but I think that 
Um, he's just, he's having more impact on the ball when he's in pick and roll situations than what you would have seen last year. So, and just having him, a lot of times he has to defend pretty tough matchups and some of that they've had to get, you know, creative with if if, when they guard the Sixers, like they eventually had to move him off Tobias Harris and put him on Danny Green and George and Yang. But there's been other games where he's had really nice possessions, whether it was down the stretch against Carl Anthony Towns, that game that they beat the Miami Heat. I think his defense was pretty lights out that entire game. And same with Miles. Like you can point at things that offensively he has gotten better at. And it's felt like some of the national discourse has been like just looking at them as one way players. And I don't think that's entirely fair, but also like the idea that they're building around the wrong big like, oh, they, they need to stop building around Sabonis and build around Miles. Like, they're not built. They, this roster is not built around either one of them. Like, this roster is not built around Sabonis currently. Right. So, I don't really understand that particular narrative either. So, I mean, you can have your opinions on which way you think that they should go moving forward. But I don't think that this roster was constructed by Kevin Pritchard of, you know, Sabonis is our best player. And we're going to find guys that fit the way that he needs to play. Like if that were the case, Doug McDermott would still be on the team. And I understand the luxury tax implications there, but like, if this was really with Sabonis in mind, Doug McDermott would still be on the team. Like, Right. Uh, I thought the Sabonis at center minutes were getting a lot better this year. And then I was in prep of the podcast. I was looking at them and like the raw statistics are not really that much better than last year, but Mm -hmm. the rim protection during that time, is better and they seem to just be getting burned by like really hot shooting from on long twos and above the break threes. And so is there any element to that? Um, like what is happening in those minutes as to, or is that just sort of like a unlucky development? Again, just the opponent above the break three point shooting during those minutes has been absurd. I think it's almost 40% or something ridiculous. Right. So, I mean, some of that's going to be a little bit hard to judge because during the earlier portion of the season, since, you know, before O'Shea got back in the rotation, they were playing Goga and Sabonis together. So it wouldn't necessarily be like Sabonis at five. It would be more Goga at five. And like I said, when Sabonis is out there by himself, they pretty typically hedge. So you're going to be giving up threes. That's, I mean, that's something you're going to surrender if you're not scrambling really well out of that with your low man rotation. I mean, typically it would be more corner threes than above the break, but yeah, I mean, some of that is just going to be noise. I mean, that's kind of what's funny too. Like the Pacers are pointing out a lot. And I do think that the Turner Sabonis pairing in general, like you can see that there has been improvements just because each of them has gotten somewhat better, but like they're talking about how their net ratings, the best that it's been. And that, you know, this is working. We don't need to make changes or whatever. I'm like, okay. But a lot of that, like you kind of need to look at opponent three point percentage because the last I looked at that, I think opponents are shooting like 31 or 32% from three when Turner and Sabonis are on the court together. And last year that would have been closer to like 38 or 39%. So that's a pretty vast difference. Like I'm not saying that makes up for the entirety of why the pairing has looked different, but that's always the first thing that I kind of look at when you look and start evaluating on off numbers and lineup data. So um, if opponents start progressing closer to what they were shooting last year, I'm not sure that the pairing looks quite as good, but they have been better in the double big minutes than they have with either one of them just out on the court by themselves from a net net rating standpoint. As someone who has forever clung to the fact that Karis LeVert is or is going to be very good, his season has been up and down. I think he's probably playing through the best offensive stretch individually for him right now when you look at the last six or, or seven games. What have you just noticed sort of about his season that maybe contributes to the to the roller coaster that he's on and is it an actual larger issue of of fit or could it be an element of like hey look at what he's you know still sort of trying to come back from last year yeah i mean i don't think it was helpful that he had the back fracture before the season even started and then obviously like the conditioning that he had said he worked to regain over the summer you know some of that's going away when you're not involved in training camp or anything and you're having to work your way back onto the court i felt like up until you know, probably about a week or two ago, he still looked like he wasn't moving super well to me, where it looked like, you know, when he needs to get an extra burst, he just doesn't quite have it. You would see him a lot on the bench sitting there with like a back device on. And then he did miss subsequent games after he had come back with back soreness that led you to believe that was going to be somewhat of a lingering issue. So I would take all that into account, but there are times where it feels like he's very separatist from the offense um, is the best way I would put it. That's a great way to put it. (laughs) That, um, yeah, like, I mean, the the game that they lost handedly to the Bucs when Giannis was still healthy before this week, like Brogdon was having to guard Giannis because their attempts to have a big guard Giannis in the prior matchup were rather disastrous. So Brogdon is doing that and they're doubling. So they're running more of the offense through Karras. And when you do that, like, it doesn't feel like the ball is going to flow 
out from him and do much for anybody else other than getting himself going. I mean, even last night, they didn't have, they obviously didn't have Brogdon with Achilles soreness and then TJ McConnell's out for maybe who knows how long seems like maybe the season. So they have Karras and, and Brad Wanamaker really heavily staggered and Karras finishes with like 30 points and five assists. His assists weren't really coming at the half court though. And a lot of what you're watching him do last night is, you know, the Pistons are switching. He's attacking that. Or if they did start to double, then they just weren't bringing a screen and he's attacking in isolation. Like, it's great that he scored as efficiently as he did last night. I'm not convinced that's going to happen, you know, night in and night out consistently. So it wasn't necessarily that he was getting anybody else involved. And I think my main quibble with him is he needs to find a better balance on how he's using screens. He loves to reject screens, especially if they're coming from his right side. Like he wants to get to his left and go away from that. I think he needs to do a little bit better job assessing how quickly the screener is coming to him. Cause a lot of coaches would tell you that a screen rejection should be your number one option all the time. I mean, look at the Pacers down the stretch of the fourth quarter against the heat. Mm. Karis LeVert gave up two screen rejections and it caused their defense to have all kinds of problems. And Sabonis ended up blowing a gasket. Like your defense is going to be on the opposite side. It's, it's going to force people. The big's going to be out of position. If whether that's a drop or a hedge or a switch, like if you give up the screen rejection, you're kind of screwed, but you got to judge how quickly, like if Sabonis is approaching quickly, then that's a great time to reject the screen because the big's going to be also coming quickly. They're going to be off balance. And then their ability to drop a foot back and get in front of you is not as good. Now, if he's coming up slowly and you're going to stand there and think about it and jab step and jab step, and then you're going to reject it. You're not really gaining anything there other than just driving into a crowd and down the stretch in that warriors game, Draymond green was not guarding miles Turner unless miles Turner was in the ball side corner. So they're running like horns twist where essentially, you know, as you would know, in horns, miles and Sabonis are both elbows. Miles sets the first screen. Karis goes off of it one way and then miles exits to the corner. Sabonis sets the other screen and you're supposed to twist back off of it and go to the right side of the floor where miles would then be in the corner so that Draymond would actually stay attached to him. He kept wanting to go away from that and just go left into the crowd where Draymond was like, Oh, well now I can roam all the way off of miles. And I, like on the last possession, they didn't run that, but then Karras ended up losing his footing while he was attempting to do that. So I would imagine that the coaching staff, I don't know this, but is probably telling him like, you can do that sometimes, but you need to judge what's happening on the court. And also you need to let the offense do more of the work for you. Cause he does that in Spain. Sometimes like, I just think it can be a little bit too much where then if you're not using the screen and you get yourself into trouble, it's just an offensive reset. If you use the screen, then you're creating separation. You can actually get miles or Sabonis on the roll or make another pass out of that. So um, yeah, I just think that his playmaking in general has, has regressed a slight bit. I think he's a capable passer, I just don't think he's necessarily, and I don't, this is going to sound harsh. I just don't think he's always a willing passer. And that's shown up in some games here because like, even in the bucks game, there was one possession where Sabonis was setting a corner pin in four miles. And this is part of the reason why I do understand where miles is coming from. Cause his teammates could find him more on occasion mm-hmm. where Sabonis is waving like three times behind him. Like, Hey, throw him the ball, throw him the ball. And, and Karis takes goes over and takes a very tough, pull up baseline too, which he did happen to make, but that's not the right play. Like you need to make the right play. So um, I think that's his next step moving forward. Would this, and I guess based off what you said, the answer to this might actually be no, but like would a way to sort of assuage what he's doing be to, I don't want to say bent, have him come off the bench because that seems stark, but like stagger him more heavily from Brogdon and Sabonis with um, McConnell out now, where it's like my thought process, it seems like they prefer to start, if they're healthy, Justin Holiday over Chris Duarte, or maybe would it make sense to give Chris Duarte more run with those other four than it would Karis LeVert, so he has more of his own me time, and then maybe those things like him just rejecting screens aren't as exacerbated by having, you know, if you're, if you're leading bench-heavier units. Right. I looked at those numbers this morning, and I think Karis has only played about 34% of his minutes without Brogdon on the court. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not opposed to that. I think that if, like, obviously, Karras's name has been in trade rumors as well. I think if he was traded to a team that was performing better than the Pacers are right now, they would probably be considering him as, like, a six-man bench juicer-type role. I don't know that, but um, I could see that logic because he is somebody who needs to have, like, the ball in his hands to the degree of a star but isn't going to produce, I don't think, star numbers for you night in and night out. Like he's not going to attack in isolation and score 30 points like he did against the Pistons every game. But if he's in the bench, you're probably more willing to let him do some of that. And some of it too, is just like, I think that Rick Carlisle's preference would be to have like 
a team full of like 0.5 second guys where you're making decisions that quickly. And Karis really likes to dance a little bit more with the basketball. So I think that's probably a little bit easier. Like, I, I don't think that they'll move him completely to the bench, but I see your point that, especially with TJ McConnell out, like this happened in Sacramento where um, Brogdon was out and they started McConnell and Lavert together. And it was kind of like, you know, it probably would have been better just to start another one of the shooters and continue to bring McConnell off the bench because Brad Wanamaker has certain moments, but some of that has been pretty rough. So just mm-hmm. like last night, they started Lavert and Wanamaker together. Then you really don't have, anybody else to run the bench units. You have to separate them out, but it does seem like it's been the coaching staff's overall preference that Karras is going to play a lot of his minutes with Sabonis and Brogdon plays a little bit more with Turner. Like a lot of Levert's minutes have matched up even in bench alignments when Sabonis is out on the court. Cause I think he wants to get downhill and, and have that as an option. I think that's more his preference, but um, yeah, I think that if McConnell is going to be out, it makes sense to, to spread out a few more of, of Brogdon, and Levert's minutes so that they can both have a little bit more opportunity to handle and and see how Duarte matches with some of that. I mean, he had a pretty rough game against Milwaukee himself and then had some moments last night that were a little bit more mixed. What have been your rookie year impressions of Duarte? And then also is the is the two-man game between him and Sabonis, like can that become a thing? I was watching, can't remember if it was the Wizards or the Maz game, but whatever I saw made me go back and watch every single Sabonis Duarte connection on the season from either end. And they're just, it's not the same as what he was doing with Doug McDermott by any stretch, but like there does seem to be like some of that type of synergy between those two, especially when Sabonis is the one who's, who's um, diming to, to Duarte. Right. And, and Duarte has mentioned in post-game interviews that he really likes playing with Sabonis for that reason. And that they're also close off the court, but um, yeah, here's, here's how I will tell you that you can tell that it's starting to grow and get better. So last night there's a possession where uh, Duarte is going to come off a handoff from Sabonis. And here's how, you know, when Sabonis is comfortable with the person he's running it with, it's a completely live ball bounce handoff. Like he's going to, he's just going to bounce the player into, into the handoff. He's not actually going to physically hold his arm out there and control it because he knows that he's comfortable that that player is going to zoom into it quick enough that they can just go on a live without the player risking knifing through the defender. So he does that with Duarte. It's a live bounce handoff. Duarte gets it. The guy goes under and Duarte holds it for a second and is patient is like, okay, I'm going to reject that and go back the other way. And then they switch it and he notices the switch and throws it over the top to Sabonis to get a shot at the rim. That I think is a pretty good indicator that both of them are coming. And the other thing that you can notice with Sabonis when the chemistry is coming is, is Duarte a few times lately has curled all the way around for the late pass. Like if somebody does overplay it, he can continues the progression of his cut all the way to the rim and and Sabonis will throw it up over the top. So those are two more like what you're saying, more Doug McDermott like plays that you would have seen a year ago that wasn't necessarily there early on. I think for me personally, if they're going to have Duarte doing more like, I wouldn't even necessarily call it primary, just more in actual pick and roll when he's on ball, I think that there's times where there's hedging and this kind of applies to all the guards where he needs to get off the ball quicker. And then also when he's getting downhill, he holds onto the ball. I would say sometimes a beat too long when he needs to be able to find Sabonis on the short roll. And then he gets too deep and is having to pass it back over his head and it gets deflected. He had some of those problems against Milwaukee too, but I mean, overall that's asking a lot, I think for Duarte this early and you wouldn't necessarily need that if all their players were healthy at the same time, I'm pretty pleased overall with this secondary playmaking they bring him off of off ball motion and I think defensively he gives another element I don't think it's perfect but they did have moments down the stretch against the Hawks where he was just flat out face guarding Trey Young that I thought were pretty solid so I think it's a really good pick it's better obviously than what they had been doing recently in the draft it was a pretty rough day the other day when it was announced that TJ Leaf had signed in China at the same time as they were assigning Goga to the G League. So um, <laughs> when you when you think of it within that context, you're just happy that Duarte is out there playing and actually getting reps. Uh, yeah, I mean, especially in his first year, too. Uh, I'm reframing this question because he played a bunch over the past seven or eight games. But the O'Shea Brissett experience, that is like he is such a helpful player and is someone who makes you I think is at least for me, basketball fans, a lot of the times we're conditioned to just zero in on the ball, but like whether it's defense or even offense. And he made, can't remember which game was, he made like a really nifty pass to a cutting Duarte the other night. But like Brissett makes me want to watch stuff away from the ball with the way he'll defend or some of the stuff that he's going to do on offense. And so what's that? Like, what is the, what encapsulates the O'Shea Brissett experience and how actually important 
is he to this team moving forward? Yeah, I was somewhat surprised early on in the season. And even in preseason, it seemed like Isaiah Jackson was getting those minutes at the backup four. And then when the season started, Isaiah Jackson was kind of out of it. And uh, Brissett, I don't believe, played on opening night. And then he did in that game that I mentioned earlier with the Heat. He was getting the minutes and then he was back out of the rotation again. So I was a little bit surprised that he wasn't a more regular fixture. But I think that they were just trying to get minutes for Goga any way that they could. But, yeah, I think you bring up a really good point. He might be their best cutter, one of their best cutters. I mean, Justin does a lot with overall off-ball motion. But in terms of, like, 45 cuts and not spoiling the spacing and knowing where to find gaps, O'Shea's very good at that. And then defensively, he's very very good as the low man, which they don't have a lot of people that can viably serve that role. Um, he moves so well sideline to sideline and contesting off ball. He's kind of like Robert, Robert Covington in that way a little bit Mm -hmm. is who I would compare him to. Like, I don't know that I think that like, he's not great defending bigger people in the post or necessarily always on ball, but the stuff that he does away from the ball defensively, isn't something that they readily have in other people on the roster. So yeah. And he just does a lot of what you're saying, like a lot of energy moments. I clipped some of them the other day. Cause like, it's not him actually grabbing an offensive rebound, but he will crash in hard and tap the ball and keep it alive. So his teammates can still retain it. And that was an element that was missing. Like if you ask like what's changed over these last like five or six games in comparison to how they look before that heat game, like their overall energy just is different. And he's part of that. Like he's part of juicing that in a way that like, I think fans sometimes think that Lance Stevenson did only some of what O'Shea does is like a little bit more contained than what Lance did. So um, I think that's an element of it. Now that we're like one third of the way through the season, are there any observations good or bad um, of Rick Carlisle's coaching job, like any material changes to this team that you like, any material changes that you really think need to be shifted up? Why have they not asked you to be a consultant for this team yet? <laughs> when you're dropping so many smart tidbits right now. I think that like, I mean, early on, I was pretty critical to be honest. Like I didn't really understand some of the Sabonis stuff and some of the late game stuff of, you know, not wanting to leverage, like we're going to stay big, but we're not going to leverage our size. And again, like I've said this many times, I'm not Shaq on TNT. I don't think that you need to be, you know, grinding out possessions and posting people every single play, but also like there is value in doing what you did against the Detroit Pistons last night against a smaller front line. When you have Sabonis, being as good as he is being able to pass out of those traps, especially when Detroit was being as predictable as they were in the way that they were doing it. They're passing from the, or doubling from the passer every single time. So that should be a pretty easy read to make, but um, yeah, I was critical of that. And then also I was critical because he kind of, you know, pointed out earlier in the year, like, well, we need to be a team that changes defense into offense. And he's very much focused on the defense, which I mean, they needed to be after last year, they had a lot of problems on defense, but then it was like, okay, but you're not really letting them do it. Like if you really want them to be able to, to turn into end and turn stops or defensive rebounds into offense, then quit having them hold the ball and, and quit calling so many plays. But in to Rick Carlisle's credit, like over, I would say probably since they did it a little bit against the Pelicans and then went away from it. But since the win over the Knicks pretty consistently, they are not running very many plays at all. Like they're going to, you know, three or four pet actions and stuff out of spread. And otherwise they're just playing a lot of random. And I think that's been good for a lot of the players. I mean, there's a balance there. I think some of the players on the team are a little bit better at playing read and react than others, but um, I think that a lot of them needed to have more freedom and he's done that. I think that as far as like correcting some of their zone defense issues, I think that there's been progress on that front, with the exception of like some of the mishaps they had with one, three, one up in Portland. I think that they've done some interesting things, triggering man out of zone that are improvements. So the one thing I'll say there to summarize is I do give Rick Carlisle credit. I don't know that I necessarily think anyone on the roster is being maximized by the overall you know, kind of more egalitarian approach. And I'm not sure that I think that makes sense until, you know, if you had TJ Warren and Carousel were, were fully healthy and functioning to the degree that they could when they were last healthy, it might make more sense. But um, I give Carlisle credit overall because he hasn't been a complete stickler and continuing to do what he was doing, if that makes sense. Like he could still be calling every play from the sideline mm-hmm. or, you know, it seemed to me that there was a pretty evident emphasis after that heat game when they played the Wizards that like, hey, we need to start finding the pocket pass and we're going to work on that at practice to find other ways to do it. Like if our guards can't do it and you, this is why it was a little bit confusing late in that loss to the, you know, 
shorthanded bucks the other night. Cause in the first half, you could tell that the coaching staff had worked with them. Like, okay, if our guards can't pass over the top and can't bend these traps, we're going to short it and pass it to the wing so that that wing man can then pass it to the roller. And then we can still play out of the middle of the floor. And then by the fourth quarter, they completely went away from that, which is where I would then again, blame the guards a little bit more than what the coaching staff's doing. But I give them credit that they've at least been willing to adjust. It's kind of like, you know, Kevin Pritchard's comments on Twitter the other day. I don't think it was probably a good idea to say on record that you don't have a real manufactured star, but I give him a lot of credit because just like with the Bjorken situation, he doesn't double down when, when he's done something that you probably shouldn't have done. Like he came out and said, look, that was a mistake. I've told the players, I apologize to them. I still believe in the players. And I think that here lately, Rick Carlisle's done a little bit of that, even if I would continue to quibble a little bit with the way Sabonis and some of the other roles have shaken out. Do you have a singularly huge pet peeve or just something that's wrong with this team when you're looking at what they've done down the stretch of close games? They are, I'm sure you know this stat, I'm not sure if our listeners do, they're 2-11 in games that are within one possession in the final two minutes. That's a lot of wins being left on the table. And this isn't even traditional crunch time. Like it's one possession in the final two minutes. That's a ton of games that are within reach. What is some of the things or just the biggest thing that you've noticed about this team that contributes to such a demonstrably bad record in those situations? Right. So if I was, uh, if I was a coaching staff listening to this, (laughs) I will give from a different team i would tell you that you should blitz the pacers as much as possible in those situations and you should crowd sabonis and don't crowd him from the post-entry passer if he gets the ball bring the traps more randomly like what toronto does from different spots on the floor because they're not going to react to it well and that doesn't mean that they'll even get sabonis the ball in those situations but they might go away from him just like when you know the lakers took all their centers off the floor they put lebron on sabonis and it was like oh well you know we don't really want to challenge that or try to look at it even if LeBron switches out, we're still not going to look at it. Um, and, and it's, that's, I mean, that, that's what I'll bring up that Bucks game. They don't have Chris Middleton. They don't have Giannis. They don't have a slew of other players. The Bucks were hedging them from pretty much the beginning of the game. And then afterwards they, you know, Karis kind of said, well, we really kind of struggled against their hedges in the fourth quarter. I'm like, yeah, but they were doing that the entire game. And for some reason, like you just decided that you were going to, stay on ball like Duarte Brogdon and Levert were doing this like staying on ball way too long until the window of time when they could get it to the release valve was gone and then they're not playing out of the middle of the floor they're not making their opponent scramble and then the I think the Bucks might have also mixed in like maybe one or two possessions of zone which kind of put them off balance too but you know I just think that a lot of what happens in crunch time is more a reflection not necessarily like I think that there have been some fluky things they've been on the wrong side of two last two minute report calls that would have you know essentially sealed the game for them and also like you can't always control it if you're not going to make shots and they're shooting the ball pretty horrifically from three during crunch time but they're also like shooting the ball like I think they're ranked like 28th and three point percentage in general so then it leads to what type of threes are you getting that's what goes back to the paint touch threes what approach are you going to But more so if you're seeing exaggerated coverages, which is what teams are going to do when the game is on the line, do you have the personnel to respond to those? And I go back and forth of, you know, do they not have the personnel or do the personnel just not want to do what they need to do in those situations? Because it seemed last night that they could, or not last night, but it seemed against the Bucs that they could do it, that they started getting frantic then in the fourth quarter. And I agreed with Lloyd Pierce after the game. He's like, there's only so many timeouts we can take and they can't really prevent it if guys like they had six turnovers, I believe in like the last seven minutes and the Bucks had eight for the game. So like, it just started throwing the ball to the, like the very obvious place where it needs to go. It doesn't go. So if I was evaluating the team and I was the general manager, like I know that Kevin Pritchard corrected it and said, like, you know, I wasn't necessarily referring to a star. I value our players. I was referring to a closer, which is kind of interesting because that's probably like the first time somebody from Indiana has lumped Paul George into being a closer. I've never seen him like mentioned in that same context. And that's what like that's what the comment had said that like, you know, Victor and Sabona or Victor and Paul George had that it factor. And then later on he said like he meant a closer, but um, having somebody else that can do some of like getting their own shot if they're not going to be able to or are not going to want to play through Sabonis as more of a fulcrum in those situations, I think, is something that they're probably missing unless Karis can really continue to turn this on and find that gear. But um, I have some degree of doubt in that just, you know, 
he also did, like I said, he lost his footing in, late in the game against the Warriors. That's something that maybe that doesn't happen on another night, but it did happen in, the, in another late game situation. So overall, I don't think it's all bad luck. I think some of it is a reflection of what I said, and that's what you're going to see in the playoffs. You're going to see teams that are coming with exaggerated coverages for an entire game and for game plans that are for all of your players, not just at the end. And, and that's how the Warriors shifted it. Like for most of the game, they were defending things fairly normally. And then at the end of the game, it's like Draymond's like just showing help everywhere and he's helping off of miles. And how are you dealing with him as a goalie? And do we have viable ways of doing that? I'm not always sure. Ultimately knowing that there are games that could have gone their way, like closer ones, knowing they're 10th in non-garbage time net rating, knowing that TJ Warren should eventually hopefully come back. It seems like, is there a much better version of this exact team? Um, within the roster, or do you think that they need some sort of a shakeup that they're missing some, a, a certain archetype of player? Yeah, I think overall the team should be better than what they currently are. I mean, this is not what I would have predicted of them. I think that some of these games could have gone the other way. And at times some of it's just flat out. I don't want to blame all of this on it, but they have come out very flat in some games and effort wise, if that's a little bit different than maybe the, the game changes as well. And then maybe crunch time isn't as important. Um, So, but I don't think that any of that would change my overall opinion of their ceiling. I think that that's still somewhat limited. And I know that people in Indiana are getting pretty tired of hearing like, Oh, we think we could be a tough out. Like at a certain point in time, you have to be, I I don't think you can continue to be okay with that being what your ceiling is like, Oh, we could be a, a tough out in the first round. Like right now they're not even, you know, in the, in the playoff or the play in picture, but if they got there, like, is, is that the best that you can be? So I kind of see a, a situation where like, I don't think they need to be in a place where they just make a move to necessarily make one unless, which obviously they do have more information than I do about what's going on in the locker room. Um, at least from a morale standpoint, other than what happened late against that Bucks games, it seems like the guys have been a little bit more engaged with each other and, and celebrating each other's successes. You're not seeing as many like, uh, little blowups as what were happening before that initial report came out. So if you feel like you can, you know, handle and manage some of that for a while and see what you can get, if something better is going to come along, I suppose you, you know, don't need to necessarily put a for sale sign out in the yard today and take whatever the first person comes up and gives you. But at the same time, I think that if they get to the end of the season and they haven't made like, you know, and we can quibble over the words rebuild, retool, if they haven't made like an incremental step where you know, we're going to trade one of the bigs in Karras and see what we can do from there. Can this team be more competitive there and then tear it down the rest of the way? If you aren't, I would be a little bit surprised by that, if that makes sense. Like if they don't take the incremental step and move one or two of those guys and see if that can change what their outcome is and add TJ Warren back, I will be surprised by that. Yeah, I thought, and I mentioned this immediately after this break, I thought they were better suited to, given how good I think they should be, make more, be more of like a buyer thing, where if you were able to, you know, move one of the bigs, you have Levert yeah. and stuff, and you're able to get like sort of a primary attacking way, like the player that you would want Levert to be, but he really isn't. I don't want to say the player All-NBA Victor Oladipo was, because All-NBA Victor Oladipos don't actually grow on trees, but it does seem more likely that, if anything, to me, that they'll either end this season in a holding pattern or is it a situation where do they explore moving miles and or Karis Levert for maybe future assets, but it's, it's not a matter of tearing it down. It's a matter of how much worse are we actually without, I, you know, Karis Levert's the guy who I love, but I keep looking at how much worse once CJ Warren is healthy are the Pacers without Karis Levert. And I think that's a question they could probably ask themselves the trade line, uh, leading into the trade line. But I personally would be shocked if they did anything like nuclear, and I think that oh, yeah. a lot of people jumped on. There's still so much time between now and the deadline. It helps them if they want to sell because I believe there'll be a dearth of sellers. But I think this team can and will be better. And I would just be, if I had to guess if they were making a move, I feel like they would act still closer to buyers like they always have all along rather than the, the teardown candidate that that athletic article painted them as. Yeah, that's, that's where I would land as well. I mean, I could see a situation where it's like, hey, you know, Sabonis is only 25 years old. He's our best player. We have an extra year of him on his contract. Let's see what we can do and getting pieces around he and Brogdon and TJ Warren and, you know, and, and maybe you retain miles. Maybe you just move Karis. I don't know. 
but or maybe you move both of them and see like how bad does the defense look can this be a viable solution what other piece can we add back there and then if it doesn't work you take the next step from there next season because you still have time he's not going to be in a contract year I don't think that you need to rush and do this right away unless you're just like blown over by a no-brainer offer because if you're wanting to stay competitive which is what Herb Simon made that sound like to me like we would be making moves because we still want to be a good team I find it very hard to believe that for Sabonis at $18 million that you're going to get a a one-for-one swap player that's going to make them better than what they are with him. Now, like, again, if if you were going the full rebuild mode and you're just like, we want to see how many picks we can get back and what the overall, like, we think we can get more for Sabonis, then that track would make more sense to me. But that doesn't sound like what Herb Simon wants to do. So... Yeah. yeah, it's almost like I, I, 87, he won't be on board with the rebuild rather than using 87 as a reason he would be on board. With yeah, yeah. <laughs> is there, uh, and look, is in so, as long as O'Shea Brissett remains untouchable, I'm fine. That's the basis <laughs> can do anything but move him. Right. Is there anything else about this team or anyone on this team that we didn't touch on? I know we didn't talk a ton about Malcolm, Malcolm Brogdon, uh, but anything along those lines that you think we need to discuss before I, I let you out of here? No, I think I think you totally touched on all of the major topics that have covered and belaggered the Pacers over the first 20-plus games of the season. And as promised, I kept it fake trade talk to a minimum. I know you love fake trades, but I thought we've I thought we've heard enough of them and that we could steer away from them for this episode. I mean, I think that we've almost always heard enough of them because I mean, and that that is something I will counter here. Like everyone always wants to know, oh, Turner or Sabonis. You really can't answer that question unless you're Kevin Pritchard. There's really no good way to answer it because you don't know what they're getting back in return. I can't tell you if I think that a Sabonis, you know, team at the five would be viable unless I know what they're getting back. And same in the return with Miles. Like you're you're losing two very different things with each of them. So unless I can see, unless they call me up and are like, oh, hey, Caitlin, here's all of the packages that have been offered. I really can't just pick one or the other over them and, and be able to tell people that. And also, like, I'm not a front office member, so I'll just, you know, let them make those deals and tell you how the trade's going to work after it's happened. Uh, someone who actually enjoys fake trades, I actually do agree with you there. I would also say that the Pacers should absolutely be calling Caitlin and throwing all the <laughs> hypothetical packages they've got her way so she can deliver a verdict. Caitlin, are you able to tell our listeners where they can follow you and your work if they don't already? Because if they don't already, you know, remedy that post-haste. Right. So my handle is at C2 underscore Cooper. I'm at Indy Cornrows, Indiana Pacer blog at SB Nation about once or twice a week. And then next week will be our monthly podcast summit where we kind of summarize stuff that's going on with the Pacers. So we do that once a month on the third Tuesday. Is that the, I'm going to butcher, is that the Tua podcast or whatever? It's two questions, Tua. It's a reference to um, a former PA announcer, Red Porter, always said, and the Pacers continue to say it now. In the last two minutes of games, they say two minutes, Tua. So that's what we've named it. Uh, I love those podcasts. You and Mark Schindler do a great job with them. So definitely check those out. Caitlin, thank you so much again for giving us your time, especially during such a, a busy part of the Pacer season, I guess. I know you've been running the gamut of podcast appearances. So we always appreciate you over here. And as you know, by now, I'll be pestering you again down the line. Hey, I look forward to it. I always like coming on here.